we are in Luke chapter 5, and the reason we are there, for those of you who are guests, is that we are just working through the book of Luke. So we just have started at the beginning, uh, before Christmas, and we're just working our way through. So that's what uh, brings us now to Luke chapter 5, verse 33, and we will go from verse 33 all the way to chapter 6, verse 11, as we seek to... Uh, understand God's word and we want God's word to speak to us and so we don't just all the time just take whatever we want we want to take what the text brings us so today we come and we come to understand this one simple phrase and unpack it today for all it's worth and that is with a smile on my face Jesus is Lord he's Lord He's in control, and he's Lord of everything, so we can trust him. So what I want to do is I just want to read just a few verses to kind of get us on the on-ramp to what we're doing, and then um, we will uh, go forward after I pray. So actually what I want to read is Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. Not even a part of the passage we're doing today. Isn't that way to roll? Okay, just keep you on your toes. You know, it's daylight savings time. Wake up. Here we go. Um, Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Let's pray. Father, take your word and drive it into our hearts. May the upshot of our time today be that we can say, I love Jesus, and I love him as my Lord. And so, Father, I ask that we would hear your voice today. Spoken loudly through your word, but also through the, the pressings in of your Holy Spirit as we sit there and as we listen. Father, I pray, I pray that you would honor your word, change your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Where I want to begin this week is just with kind of an overview of all that we're looking at here. So let's dive into a drawing that Pastor Byron gave us last week, okay? Even though I preached, I used his drawing. So this here uh, symbolizes a mountain in some senses, and namely that at the middle, right here, column four, there is a, an apex. There is the point of the point. It is the focus that... We are meant to have. And if you see at the very, very top, it says Luke 5, 1 through 6, 16. So this entire mountain summarizes Luke 5, chapter 1, all the way through Luke 6, verse 16. On the bookends, you see that Jesus calls his followers to follow him. He calls Peter here. He calls the rest of the 12 over here. Right in the middle, he calls the one we just read about named Levi, also known as Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, and he calls him to follow him with all of his life. 
Now, on either side of it, we saw that Jesus did some healing, and now today's passage, which we're in today, columns 5 and 6, that is, Jesus also teaches us about the Sabbath. But what is common about this entire mountain is that it's characterized by two things. One is the opposition of the Pharisees towards Jesus' teaching, and the contrast of them and those who respond to the call. The call of follow me with all of your life. And so what did we just read? We read that Jesus went out, he went to the workplace of Matthew, the tax collector, basically a toll collector, a position that wouldn't be trusted even in a court of law to tell the truth. He goes out to him, he talks to him, and he says this, follow me. And we don't get all the wrestle of the heart, but we do get the punchline, and that is, he left everything following. Now, I want to tell you a story. We are involved regularly with an organization called Gateway. Gateway is a group that is an advocate for the unborn. It is a, it is a group that um, does ultrasounds, it does crisis pregnancy uh, counseling, it does pregnancy testing, etc., and as a church, we have been really involved with them for the past several years. Well, about four or five years ago, one of our members was on the board of Gateway. And this member came to me and he said this, would you consider being on the board? And I thought about it, and I didn't feel necessarily released to do it. And so there was a lot of hesitation, and then this member of our church, but yet board member of Gateway, came to me again, said, have you thought some more about it? Would you consider being on the board? I think it would be good. And after praying about it a little bit longer, remember eating together with this man and his wife, and ended up saying, yes, I will be on the board. And I thought about this because I would not have done it if he didn't ask. I wouldn't have done it. I would have been sitting on the sidelines, not engaged as much in this cause, if he didn't ask. And this is exactly what we get from our Savior, and this is exactly how God uses his people. He uses sinners to call other sinners to follow Jesus. And Jesus leads the way. He goes to this tax collector, one estranged and a social outcast, and he gives the ask. He says, this is the best thing for you. Follow me. And now everything that we look at for the rest of today has that as the banner. It is our loving Lord with a smile on his face, massive arms open wide and an invitation. O oh church, with all that you hear, follow me as your Lord. I love you and there will be no happier place for you than if you follow me. And so what are we going to see? We are going to see Jesus as the Lord, the Lord over four things. But in every one of them, it calls for us to respond by following him fully as our Lord. Here's what we'll see. The Lord calls us to follow him as Lord of our longings, our desires. And our response would be, that we run to him to satisfy our longings. Number two, we want to follow him 
as Lord of new beginnings. He specializes in new beginnings. And so our response is to love him for making old things new. We want to follow him as Lord of the Sabbath. A direct quote from Luke chapter 6 verse 5, which we will get to in a little bit. And our response is to rest in him. Then we want to follow him as the Lord of love. And our response is that we love through him. He is Lord. He is worthy of us giving everything to him. And so let's dive in and see how he is, number one, Lord of our longings. Let's start at verse 33. This is where our text begins today. And he begins with the subject of fasting. Now the Pharisees are... Um, have this motif of being critical. They've got this critical eye towards Jesus and they want to catch him in doing wrong. We will get to that by the end of the passage, but right now let's just look at their first question. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And this is a foreshadowing of Jesus the bridegroom dying, rising from the dead, then ascending to the right hand of the Father. The bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So we stop there, and we see that Jesus is Lord of our longings. Now, fasting was something that was done regularly by the people of God to express first, usually first and foremost, their sin. It was this sense of, I am a sinner, and I am mourning over my sin, and so what I must do is I will stop from, I will refrain from eating a meal or several meals, and I will use that time to say, oh God, I hunger for you to forgive me, and to move in the midst of us as a people. Fasts were regularly corporate as a people, not just individuals popping up kind of doing it every now and then. But that's what fasts were meant to do. Meant to say, I long for God to meet me and to move in our midst as a people and to wash me clean of my sin. And so... Jesus is now being asked, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your followers fasting? Everybody else's followers are fasting. Why aren't you followers of fasting? And he uses the illustration of a wedding. Now, some of you have been married. Some of you have attended marriage or weddings. Some of you have planned weddings. And if you owe anything about this event, it takes a lot of energy, even to do it simply. It is a sense where you are trying to invite people and you are trying to get places booked or you're trying to get photographers or you're trying to get a cake or some type of food or you're trying to get tables and chairs or you're trying to tell people out of town. You're trying to coordinate schedules. You're trying not to offend people in the whole process. You're just really trying hard to make this thing happen. Never forget that day, May the 23rd, 1998, Almost 20 years ago, after what I believe is way too long of an engagement, one year, 
glory. I knew the song that was going to play when Pat was going to come down the aisle. The song starts playing, and the doors open wide. There she is. She is, she was beautiful. She came down that aisle. Of course, I bawled like a baby. I could barely see her, but I knew she was pretty. <laughs> she got up there. In that moment, I was celebrating being with her. We were looking at each other. We were holding hands, and it was a wonderful moment. Now, what would have happened if in that moment I said, excuse me, just a second, and I pull out my phone. I just need to check what's happening in the game. And so I check ESPN, and I'm looking at the, the sports stat. What, what would happen in that moment? <laughs> Marriage wouldn't last long, some of you are saying. <gasps> Why is that a problem? Because that's not the time to do any type of preparation or to turn your gaze anywhere else. And this is what Jesus is saying. Fasting was to prepare your heart for the Messiah to come. And Jesus says, I'm here. And if I'm here, the point of me being here is to celebrate it. We went through the ceremony. We had a festivity of events we had all kinds of meeting and greeting and eating it was a blast we loved it that's what it, Jesus was saying I'm here why fast the fasting was longing for me to come and if I'm on the scene what are you longing for all your longings are met in me he's the Lord of our longings satisfying every ounce of us. Longings are gifts from God. We want, we crave, we long, we desire, and that is a good thing. It is a cold person, a person of great sadness that doesn't feel and doesn't long. Desire is a gift from the living God. Longing we have longings every day and all throughout the day. Longing breeds creativity. It births leadership. It gives life to risk. It gives life to rescues. Longing is wonderful. I was reading this story this week. And there was a dad and his two sons. One was 15 and one was 8. And they had jacked up their car and were at replacing an axle. The 15-year-old needed to go inside to get a drink of water and use the restroom. And so it left the dad and the eight-year-old outside working on the car. The daddy goes underneath the car to work on the axle and pulls it too hard, and the car falls on top of him. The dad's name was Stephen, and Stephen yells out to JT, which is the eight-year-old boy, hit the jack, pump the jack, and then he passes out. As the last words he remembers saying. JT, all 50 pounds of his body, went, positioned the jack firmly, and starts jumping up and down with his 50 pounds for 15 minutes on that jack. And raises the car up. And then goes in and calls 911. Of course, it's a good story. Daddy made it. Daddy only had 13 broken ribs. 
but his life failed. What drove that boy to spring into action, to position the jack, and to not give up for 15 minutes to get that car up? What did it? It was desire. I want my dad to make it. Longing is a beautiful thing. It leads to all kinds of great things, but misplaced longing can not only crush you, but crush others. You can have a longing for things to go like you want them to go. But if you hold that longing as ultimate, you will crush everybody in your path because they are not doing it like you want it done. You'll be angry, you'll be worried, you'll be oppressive, you'll be a lawmaker, and that's all you can give are laws, and nobody knows how to please you because you feel like you've got to have it a certain way. A good desire to have things go orderly can be an ultimate desire, and that can crush you and others. You can want to sleep, right? Come on now. That tells me you are asleep. You can want to sleep because you lost an hour last night. And you can want money, and you can want health. And those in and of themselves are not bad, but when you make those things ultimate, you will be let down, and you will crush others. The point of fasting was to say, in God all my longings are met. That's why Psalm 23 starts off, the Lord is my shepherd, and in him I shall not want. In him all my longings are satisfied. And so fasting is this time when you stop for a meal or you stop for several meals. Or if you have some type of physical situation where you can't stop from a meal, you may be stopped from some activity. And in the time that you would normally eat, you call out to God and you say, God, satisfy me with you. And when that stomach growls, and it will do it, it's meant to say, I hunger for you more than anything else. And if you stop and normally you go home and you watch TV at night and you say, tonight I'm going to leave the TV off. I'm going to just sit and spend some time reading and praying. And while you're doing that, you get trigger happy. The remote finger wants to go. Oh, I, I can do it. It's okay. I'll spend just a few minutes. I'll be fine. And when you say no to that for just this one thing, not because movies are bad, but you want to say Jesus is better, when you say no to that and you press into him, you are saying, Christ, you satisfy me, and in you all of my longings are met. It is not meant to be a rule to stifle you. It is meant to focus your heart and your body and your affections to say, Jesus, you are Lord of my longings. And so we stop and we pray and we say, oh God, come, come, cause my children to love Jesus, come. God, take where there is tension in relationships, maybe in marriage, maybe with friendships, and would you just remove that tension and would you breathe peace because you can satisfy that longing. God, would you come? My heart is cold and dry. Would you come and make it satisfied in you? Would you do that? That is what we long for. It's what Psalm 42, 1 says. This is the heart of the one who fasts. 
Oh God, replace unhealthy longings with more of you. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants or longs for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for the living God. This is the privilege we have in being able to stop and to press into a God who is Lord of our longings, and in him all of them are satisfied. But he's not only Lord of longings, he's Lord of new beginnings. Lord of new beginnings. Let's look on at the text. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. That is, a story that tells a story. And he has two parts to this parable. And they work together. So he says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Now, why not? Well, if he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And now he goes on to tell the story a little further. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, why would that be the case? Well, the wineskins made of leather, they, they take time, but over time they begin to shrink and they diminish in size. And then they get brittle once they have kind of shrunk over time and they get hardened. Now, when you pour new wine into these leather-type containers that used to hold the wine, new wine has to do what? It has to ferment. And so that means it will expand. And if you have expanding wine in a brittle container, what's going to happen? It'll burst. Okay? It's okay to talk. We, we need to talk with one another here, okay? That's going to help you too. It helps me. I love it. But it's good for you. So, he says, if he does, verse 37, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now what is he saying? He is saying the old covenant was summarized by this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that summarizes the whole old covenant. It also summarizes the new covenant. Now here's the problem. The old covenant acknowledged that the people of God could not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as himself. So it was brought with a bag of laws. A whole bunch of laws were dumped onto the people of God in order that they might not veer from loving God and loving their neighbor. Every one of the laws that were given to Israel, over 613 that we have recorded, were all meant to channel the people of God to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as himself. But it was also meant to do one other thing, and that is to long for the Messiah, to want the Messiah to show up on the scene because he was the one that was going to rescue them for their sins and he was going to give them a new heart. They wanted that. So when the Messiah was to come, he would bring in a new kingdom the old would go and the new would come. But now here's what the Pharisees were doing. They were taking the old covenant of law keeping and not seeing it 
as something that pointed to the Messiah, and then when the Messiah showed up, they would get rid of that. They wanted to hold on to it. It was holding on to the old wineskins and trying to pour new understanding into it, and it just blows up in their face. And so Jesus is saying, the new has come. What's the new? What makes the new covenant new? Jesus has come. It was all pointing to him anyway. And now that he's here, he's ushering his kingdom. He is king. We follow his laws. Those laws given to Israel are no longer binding upon the people of God. What we have is we have Jesus coming and being new. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb in the bunch. But when you look at verses 36 through 38, and it uses the word new seven times in three verses, I think Jesus is trying to tell us something. And what's he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that when he comes, he's doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing. He specializes in new beginnings. The new covenant is summarized in him. It's summarized in him. And if it's summarized in him, nobody in their right mind would turn away from him, but they would surrender to him and follow him. Do you see in the text where it says, verse 36, it says, no one tears a piece from a new garment? Do you see that? I'll just ask it again, just see if you see it. Okay, very good. Okay, now see verse 37, and it says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins? Okay, well... He's actually critiquing them for doing the very thing that he says no one's going to do. So what's he mean? Well, he's, he's saying it's foolish to do this. No one would want to put their face on a hot stove iron. That's foolish. No one would want to run a car off of a cliff. That's foolish. But to take it and make it a little bit more personal, personal, it would be like saying, no one who has experienced freedom from addiction, who's been set free from that, no one would want to run back to being enslaved by that substance or by that person or by that food. No one would want to do that. It was enslaving. Yet, we know it happens all the time. What is foolish, we run back to. And Jesus is saying, something new is here that sets you free, that delivers you from these things that were trapping you. And your performance is not the measure my performance is. My life is the measure. I will save you. Don't run back to old ways of finding your significance. And your meaning. Jesus is saying, I am the new covenant. One night this week, I was reading to my little boy, Justice, six years old. We were reading through the Bible storybook. Picture, big picture Bible storybook is one that we use and kind of cycle through about five or so. And this one we were reading, and we were reading about... David and Solomon, and Solomon building a temple, and in the temple, there was an altar there, and 
there was an altar where animals were killed and blood was spilled. And I'm just telling this story. And Justice said, why did they hate animals so much? <laughs> I love kids. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you have to think about it. And so you're like, okay, how do you respond to this? And I was like, they didn't hate animals so much. God hated sin so much. And when sin happens, death has to happen. And so animals were killed. Now, he was smart enough to realize, I said, who is sinning? The animals? No. Who was sinning? The people. So the animals were only so good. You had to keep sacrificing over and over. What we needed was we needed a person. We needed someone who could do what we couldn't do and who would be our sacrifice in our place. If not, the consequence was death. Because here's the deal. That's how a covenant works. A contract says, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, we're do I'm done with you. A covenant says, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, death is my lot. And I am saying, I will die if I do not keep my end of the bargain. So here's the covenant between God and myself. It is, God, I will follow you with all of my heart. And if I don't, death is what I should be owed. And God says, I will serve you and I will help you and I will care for you and I will always keep my word and I will never leave you. God keeps his end of the bargain and I blew my end of the bargain. What do I deserve? I deserve death. And so what did Jesus do when my head is on the chopping block and I am ready to be slaughtered and rightfully so for disregarding God and committing treason against him? Jesus pushes me out of the way, lays his own life in my place, and he is the bloody sacrifice that my sins deserve. And not only is he my sacrifice, but he did the part of the covenant that I could not do, meaning he was obedient when I could not be. He came and lived 33 years on this earth as a perfect individual to say, not only do I keep my end of the bargain, I keep your end of the bargain. And because of that, I specialize in new beginnings. It's called the new covenant. And not by your works, but by faith in me, you can be made new. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone, the new has come. Many of you desire new beginnings. I was reading in the WRAL this week, and if you, I've told you this before, but there's a section in WRAL that makes me laugh. It's called Strange News. The Strange News section is really kind of bizarre. And so this one was not bizarre, but it was just funny. So it was an encounter with a soldier and this soldier's child with Queen Elizabeth. And so Queen Elizabeth is walking down this procession. And as Queen Elizabeth is walking down this procession, this child standing at the foot of Queen Elizabeth, or standing at the, in her mom's arms, what you see here is a time of peace. And then all of a sudden, this child goes eight nuts crazy and starts screaming.
and start squirming like this right here. If any of you have had children, you've seen and had a child do this, right? I don't want to obey. The back goes like this, you know, and all of a sudden he's like this. And what makes it awkward, and the reason I didn't show the video, is because it just keeps going. She just stands there, and she's smiling, waiting on this child to get respectful. And you can just imagine the mom in this moment. She's just like, good night. Would you like move on? And all you hear in the video is thousands of pictures, okay? So you can imagine that this would be a moment when you want a new beginning. You want to start over, okay? Parents have had these moments. You have all had these moments. There's something about physical embarrassment that wants new beginnings. But there's something even deeper about personal shame and guilt that desires new beginnings. The freedom of knowing that you can be forgiven and you don't have to be shackled by sins that have gripped you for years and that you are not identified by your past. You're identified by the one that you call Lord. It'll be another person. It'll be a substance. Or it can be the Savior of the universe, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for you, says, I can make all things new. The call that Jesus makes in this moment is stop writing your life off, any portion of it, saying it cannot be made new. And surrender all that you are, respond to him and say, Jesus specializes in making things new. He is the substance of the new covenant. He is what makes it new and fresh. He is the Lord of new beginnings. We go on in chapter 6, verse 1, and we see that he is also the Lord of the Sabbath. It says here, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now let's make sure you understand. The Sabbath was created for man to remember God and to follow him, but it was a refraining from everything. And the interpretation of this refraining, it took all kinds of narrow interpretations, and this was one of them. That any type of providing food for yourself that wasn't prepared for yourself on the day before was considered work. And so plucking a head of grain and rubbing it off so that you would get the edible grain and eating it yourself was considered work to the Pharisees' interpretation. And so they see Jesus and they yell, foul! Because listen to verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, I know I'm importing a tone there, but I believe that's right. And then verse 3, and Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anybody except for the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? Here's the punchline. And he said to them, the Son of Man, which he has already called himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. I give the Sabbath meaning, Jesus says. The Sabbath is pointing to me. Now, why in the world? Because as I was reading this, it, 
it was a li- felt a little disjointed. Why do we go from fasting to the newness of the new covenant in Jesus to the Sabbath? It seems like unrelated subjects, but Luke is slamming them together, as we already saw in this mountain message. Why is it together? It's because if you understand the Sabbath rightly, the Sabbath was meant to address the first two subjects. The Sabbath was meant to be a day that you set aside and you refrain from work in order that it might cultivate a longing, i.e., you don't have to fast on the Sabbath, but the same purpose of the Sabbath, it would cultivate a longing for the Savior. It would cultivate a longing for God. Also on the Sabbath, It was meant to cultivate a longing for the Messiah and the new covenant to come, a new heart to be given. And so the Sabbath was also about both of these. But that's the very thing that the Pharisees were missing. They were missing what the Sabbath was about. Fasting was for longing. The new covenant was because of Jesus and Sabbath was pointing to both. So what I want to do is as I was preparing for this, I preached a sermon in the rest series that we did back in October-ish, September-October, on this issue of the Sabbath and how do we live it out and apply its rhythms to our life. But I did feel, because as I was preparing it, I began to see how over those four or five months, the Sabbath heart had become like sand in my fingers and had begun to kind of slide away. How I'd begun to smuggle work and distraction back into the day off. A day that could be cultivated for prayer and for play. I was smuggling in. How can I get one more thing done? And so as I was reading this, I felt it helpful for us to be reminded of why the Sabbath was given to the people of God. And that will help us contrast for how the Pharisees perverted it. There's four main reasons the Sabbath was given, and I'm just going to go through them quickly. Number one, why the Sabbath? In order to remember God and worship Him. To remember Him. The Sabbath was for remembering. You go six days of work, and then you are to take some time off in order to remember God. I said last week, what were the people of Israel's sins regularly summarized as? And they forgot God. Why was the Sabbath given to the people of God? It was so that they would not what? Forget God. That's right. So the Sabbath was given so that they would remember the person of God and they would worship Him, engage with Him, enjoy Him. But the Sabbath was also given so that they would remember His work, that He is a rescuing God, that He is a God who sets free Tim Keller says this, specifically about refraining from work. If you don't rest, you are a slave. That if we cannot break away, whatever we can't break away from, we are enslaved to that thing. That is the definition of an addiction. If we cannot break away from it, then we are addicted to it. If we cannot do without it, then we are enslaved to it. So not only is the Sabbath, was it meant to be a day where you remember God for who He is, but also you remember Him for what He has done. 
But then the response was not just a remembering. The response was cultivated by ceasing from your work. And as you do that, you cease from your work and rest in His finished work. Now, that can sound complicated. But what is His finished work? The finished work is we have full acceptance in Him by faith alone. All because of His work on the cross and His work in the resurrection. It's finished. And so what we do is we say that when we take time off to rest. Some of you are afraid that your longings will not be met. And although you might know in your brain that Jesus is Lord of longings, it's like, what does it look like for that practically to be the case? Well, the privilege we get when we take one day to say, I'm all yours and I'm all in for prayer and for play, it is to say, whether I'm right or wrong, that doesn't define me. It doesn't define me because Jesus has finished the work that says, no matter whether you accept me, he accepts me. If you're wrong, that doesn't define you. And if you're right, it's owing to him. And so all of a sudden, you don't need to be defined by whether you're right and wrong and get defensive and get angry at others. All of a sudden, you can say, the work has been finished. I am accepted fully in Christ. And so it's okay to be told I'm wrong. And it's owing all to him when I'm told I'm right. What else? What else are you afraid of? Some of you, you're going to go home today and you're going to take a nap. I hope I can. Naps are from Jesus. I love naps. They're wonderful. But some of you are going to aim to take a nap, and it's not going to happen. And what Jesus speaks to us in this day when naps are wonderful is he says, whether you get that physical rest or not, I will supply all your needs. So when you're trying to nap and something interrupts you, very helpful timing. If that happens, you don't have to be angry or frustrated or embarrassed because the Lord can supply all of your needs. He can give more energy to you than any nap could ever give. Just remember this. He's better at solving your longings than you TV or your phone. Okay? When some of you singles are longing for a spouse, you're longing to be married. I can't promise you that you're going to be married. But I can promise you this. Because of Jesus Christ's finished work, you will never be alone. You won't be alone. He's always with you, and he promises that that is enough. I've given you myself, he says. I've given you the church, and that's enough. Pray for a spouse. Pursue it. That's great. But on these days of Sabbath cultivating, we can cease from our work because God has finished it. 
it's done. And then we cease from our work because our body needs rest. We need to say, I've got limits. I've got limits. And so, friends, the Sabbath was not rejected by Jesus. It was redefined. It was not obey a certain day in a certain way. It was not about, is it a Saturday or a Sunday? It is about, I need to take some time to remember Him, to remember His work, to cease from my work in order that I might rejoice in His finished work and my body might know its limits and get rest. I do all of that so that I can have a Sabbath heart and find rest in Him. What is the summary of Sabbath? Rest in His work. Rest from your work. The summary is that. You need to be thinking about how you can work hard six days and how you can take time to play and pray. Enjoy His creation. Rest in His work. Rest from your work. Now, this contrasts with the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. Because what they say is, what you're doing, Jesus, is unlawful. And now Jesus says, you're missing the point. Here's how the Pharisees treated the Sabbath. They were like this. I'm obeying the Sabbath. I'm taking time off. Not plucking grain. That's what they're doing. And then Jesus is over here plucking grain, and they're like, you're blowing it. But if they only understood the Sabbath was not meant to be a wall, it was meant to be something that narrowed the gaze to help you love God and love your neighbor. It was meant to help you long for the coming Messiah. Jesus is saying, I'm right here in front of you. The Sabbath was meant to point you to me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the content of the Sabbath. I'm the master of the Sabbath. And instead of using it to get to me, you're just using it to get to you. So many people do that today. If I obey rules, I'm good to go. The rules were not meant to be an end in themselves. They were meant to cultivate a relationship with the living God. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath? It means... The authority over the Sabbath to define its rules are mine. The authority is His. And what does it mean to be Lord of the Sabbath? It means that the Sabbath is meant to point to Jesus. And the Pharisees missed it. So we must take time. Fight for it with all your heart. To take time to cultivate a Sabbath heart. Where you rest in His work and rest from your work. And now finally we see him that he is not only Lord of our longings, Lord of new beginnings, Lord of the Sabbath, but he is Lord of love. And look at this in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And listen to verse 7. I want you to look at it because I'm going to have you say some certain words with me if you would please. Verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees, and say these next two words, watched him they watched him now why were they watching him it goes on and it says to see whether he would heal on the sabbath so that that's a purpose phrase and now say the rest of the sentence with me they might find a reason to to what accuse him they wanted 
him to be guilty. They were critical, and instead of looking for grace or looking at how to love, they wanted to find fault. This is exactly what we see the Pharisees doing. When Jesus healed the paralytic and forgave sins, they wanted to fault him. They didn't ask him, are you the coming Messiah? They just said, you shouldn't be doing that. They were critical. When he went to the tax collector and he ate with tax collectors and sinners, it says, and the Pharisees grumbled. And now we read in this passage, when they are fasting and they're trying to indict him for not having fasting followers. And then we see, when they're plucking grain, they're saying, hey, what you're doing is not lawful. And now we see, they're just looking at him, watching him, waiting for him to mess up. Are you going to heal on the Sabbath? You know you can't do that kind of work on the Sabbath. Friends, some of us are corrupted by having, first and foremost, a skeptical and critical eye, rather than an eye that looks for grace and looks for how to love. The critical, the constant criticism corrupts the soul. And when you look for it, you'll find it. You'll find something wrong. And even if something is not wrong, you'll misinterpret things because you are looking to find something wrong. And the reason you will find something wrong is because deep down it will make you feel better about yourself if you can find something wrong with that other person. And it will give legitimacy to your bitterness. I've seen marriages dissolve because when one spouse did something wrong, all of a sudden that other spouse has a critical eye and that other person can't get out from underneath it. I've seen friendships break apart because rather than looking for where God is at work and how to love that other person, they're setting their eyes, watching, waiting to see how they could accuse them. Because deep down they know if they can find something wrong with them, it gives legitimacy to their frustration and distance and bitterness. It is a problem that is crushing us as a people. I've seen churches split because people want to have a critical eye. And friends, you will find problems everywhere. And it will not be solved by bouncing from one church to the next. I promise you that. Because there's one thing common about every single church. It's filled with people. And people like me and people like you are sinners. And leaders are going to be faulted in some way. Hear this. If Jesus was criticized, don't you think if you're leading something, you'll probably criticize too? And if Jesus, by following in his ways, were criticized, if you follow in his ways, don't you think you'd probably criticize too? Yes, it's going to happen. Friends, we have to have a new aroma blow through our businesses and our marriages and our churches and our relationships that is looking for grace where God is at work and looking on how to love that person even if they've done us wrong rather than being poisoned like the Pharisees who were watching to accuse us. It ended up getting Jesus killed because they would not let it go. And oh friends, how freeing it is when the gaze is set differently. And when you are just looking for where God is at work, I promise you, just like you'll find criticism if you want to be critical, you will find God at work if you're looking for him at work. 
And just like if you want to find criticism by looking for criticism and you will find it, you will find ways to love if you will just look for it. The Bible says this in Romans 13.10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. The Pharisees were saying, keeping the law is right, you shouldn't heal. When love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's just look at what happens in verse 8 to the end. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their critical nature. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and stood here. And now this is brilliant. Have you ever seen one of those law movie shows where the lawyer all of a sudden does this wonderful oratory gig and all of a sudden... Justice is served and the good guy wins, you know, and he's like, yeah, I like that moment. Well, this is one of those, yeah, I like those moments. Because watch this. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Gotcha. To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, meaning they didn't answer, he said to them, okay, stretch out your hand. You see why this is brilliant? He didn't touch the man. That could have been work, you know. Instead, going to heal him by speaking. Stretch out your hand. The guy does this. The hand is restored. And look at their response. This is the response of one poisoned by the critical heart. It says, verse 11, but they were filled with fury. When love was said. Friends, that's how it can blind us. Even when some of the best things are done, our hearts get poisoned. And so, I want to end where we began. Jesus is looking at you. He's asking you to respond. He wants you to follow him with all that you are. Follow him as Lord. Lord of your longings, run to him. He will satisfy you. Lord of new beginnings, he can make you new for the first time and he can continue to make you new. He specializes in that. Lord of the Sabbath, he wants you to stop to remember his greatness and rest in him. Now we see Lord of love because he promises that he will use you to love your neighbor even when you don't feel like you can. Follow him as Lord. Be the best thing that we fight together to do till we can. Father, I love you and I thank you that you are Lord of heaven and earth. What we articulated at the beginning of this service, I believe in you. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom salvation hangs. And I just ask, O oh God, that we would respond. We would respond in repentance if necessary. We would respond in asking you to satisfy us. We would respond in pursuing you. We would respond. Father, I pray. I pray that you would teach us in this moment. As we take the Lord's Supper, we would rest in it.